Let me ask God to bless the teaching of His Word, and we'll jump in. We have a, a fantastic passage this morning. Father, we thank You. It's just my soul is hearing the songs we sang, just even listening to the choir. All blessing, honor, dominion, and power are Yours. Wow. God, we just see on the news how our, our politicians are all talking about power, and they're on a power trip, and it just has been reorienting to remember that the things we call power are nothing. You are the true power and dominion. And so, Father, we worship You, and the way we want to worship You is by giving ear to Your Word with hearts willing to obey. Even that is a gift that You give people. So, would You give us that gift this morning, a hunger for Your Word and a desire to, to listen to it and apply it to our lives, so that we would be bringing honor to you who exercises all power and dominion. It is our great privilege to sit and have your word, so we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, let me, let me, let me throw a curveball to you by asking this question, very unlike what I just prayed. Uh, what kind of God would you like if you could choose? Right? That's an odd question to get posed, especially at a conservative church. You mean we actually get a choice on this thing? This is, this is nice. I get to choose. Um, you know, let, let me, let's be honest. We all know, number one, that we actually don't get to choose the kind of God we want. Uh, and number two, but sometimes we live like we do, don't we? Um, and we can't help it. We live in a culture where choice, choice is right up there with almost another human right of ours, right? I mean, we got 31 choices of ice cream, remember? I mean, you, some of you are old enough to remember when you had three choices of ice cream, now let alone 31 choices of ice cream. You can have 15 different lattes at Starbucks. My sons introduced me to this soda machine at this restaurant we went to that this one machine puts out about 30 different kinds of soft drinks, right? My sons call it the diabetic machine or whatever it is because you can, and they, they love these suicide drinks, so they push every button for their one drink. We love choice. I mean, it's something that we think in, as Americans, we get a choice in everything. Uh, and we can't help but think, bring that idea into every sphere of our life. So we like churches, we like movie theaters, we like fitness clubs that give us the maximum amount of choices so that we can make the best choice. So when I ask that question, what kind of God would you choose, what kind of God would you like, I'm simply putting on the table, whether we're conscious of it or not, that we actually do choose bits and pieces of who God is and live our lives accordingly. Now, that question in a church like this, I know there are many of you that understand the, the, the difference between what we would like and what we would need, but because what we need is really what we would end up liking, we'll, add, we'll take what we need, even if at first we may not like it, because we know ultimately we will like it. You make sense, right? Right, well, it's kind of like broccoli, right? You, you don't really like it, but you know that it's going to be good for you, and you like what it does, so you then kind of like it. It's the same kind of thing. Now, and I'm not asking this question at a, so theology and deep-rooted understanding of Scripture aside, I'm asking a question at a general cultural level. If you were to ask the average person out there, and I love that we have all these great questions to start conversations. A couple weeks ago, the question was, does God still speak to us today, right? So this, year, this week's question is, what kind of God would you like? If you were to ask the average person, chances are they would say something along the lines, like, I would like one that's certainly kind, uh, one that's nice, maybe easygoing, relaxed. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of things you would hear. What you're probably not going to hear is, I want a God that is unstoppable, I want one that's dangerous with really high expectations. 
That's not what you're going to hear people on the street say when you ask them the question, what kind of God you'd like. But that is exactly the kind of God that He's revealing Himself in our passage this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6, and a wee bit of chapter 7. But when you read Scripture, when we read this, and when you stop and think about it, we all know that life is too uncertain, life is too vulnerable, life is too full of evils and difficulties to have anything less than an unstoppable, powerful God who is just. And that is exactly what we see presented to us in our passage this morning. So what we're going to see in our time together is the supremacy of God in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, followed by the severity of God in chapter 5, verse 6, all the way through chapter 6, verse 16, and then finally the sanctity of God in chapter 6, verse 17, and all up to chapter 7, verse 1. Now, if you were here last week, you saw that God has gone public, so to speak, of, of everything He had been promising, everything He had been speaking about, everything He had been warning about for 20 years, which covered uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, 2, and 3, and chapter 4, He went public with it all, and in doing so, He was challenging two of Israel's driving false beliefs. And when you really think about it, these are the same kind of false beliefs that exist in our culture. The first one was that they could live however they wanted to without impunity in terms of their relationship with God. And number two, that God would actually be content with some kind of religious superstition that they had. And God was not happy with either of those and completely decimated those ideas, those, those way of thinking for them. So in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Yahweh, remember I said that in the Old Testament, that's the name for God, so you'll often hear me say Yahweh for the Old Testament. He's establishing anew the kind of deity that He is. And the reason is, if you're familiar with Samuel, if not, you'll be learning as we study that there's this really pivotal shift from chapter 7 on to the remainder of the book, it goes really even through 2 Samuel, and if you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, those are all covering roughly the same time period. It's almost as if it's a different nation. It's because they really make a turnaround because they learn the lessons that's being taught in chapters 4, 5, and 6 right here. You see, this generation of Israelites, this, this group of people, they have only known apathy, They've only known spiritual passivity. They've only known bad theology, and they are get being taught, maybe for the first time by the Lord, a firsthand lesson that God is holy and awesome in majesty and worthy of passion, worthy of active obedience, and worthy of honor, and He's teaching him those lessons. And He begins by teaching him, teaching them His supremacy. And that's what we see in chapter 5. So let me read to you um, probably one of my uh, uh, favorite passages in the Old Testament. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and, and you'll figure out why I love this passage. So, uh, just a little bit of a recap. Chapter 4, they had, uh, the Philistines just decimated Israel. They lost. Uh, the, there was a big slaughter. They lost the ark of God, which was tr tr uh, catastrophic as a nation. Eli, the high priest, and his successors, they all died that day. The nation was in disarray. The Philistines had won the day, or so they thought. So that's where we leave chapter 4, chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, which was their national deity, that's who they worship, and set it up beside Dagon. 
Verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward again on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why, verse 5, the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So the Philistines got the ark, they got their prize, and they they bring it into the temple of Dagon, uh, of their own deity, as an act to show that they thought that they were going to co-opt the God of the Hebrews, to either serve them and their God, Dagon, by placing him into the temple in kind of a prostrate before, prostrate before uh, Dagon. But we see in verses 3 and 4, God does not intended to be co-opted into their pantheon of gods as if he was just another deity like any other deity out there. And the, the real irony here, and the funny part of it is at the end of verse 3, that the priests came in and seen their god Dagon bowing down before the ark, and they have to pick up their god and then put him back in place. And they do this twice. I find that this is hilarious that here's their god in his temple. He falls over, and they have to pick him up. The god that they look to for strength, the god that they apparently worship to hold them up, here they are picking him up off the ground and putting him back in his place. You know, if you were to ask some friends or family or some others, they would say that they think Christianity is a lot like this, right? That it's just a a, a psychological need. It meets a a psychological need or some kind of spiritual emptiness that they have, but at the end of the day, it's pretty impotent. It's important to realize that the message that Yahweh is communicating in this first part of our passage uh, to these Philistines, and in a very, actually very funny almost sarcastic narrative, and the rest of the chapter, because it's the same message that the Lord wants everyone to hear about God, and that is this. He is far from impotent. As a matter of fact, He's omnipotent. He's not unable to do anything. He's able to do everything, and He cannot be co-opted into your life as if He was another good ingredient into your ideal life mix. That is not the option he's giving anybody, and he's illustrating that here in 1 Samuel chapter 5. God doesn't intend to be a psychological aid or a spiritual fix. He intends to be supreme, and he does not abide any other competitors for that supremacy. And he's making that point really clear here in chapter 5. You see, in in ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, deities or monarchs, uh, believe that the power of a god or a king or whatever, uh, ruler, emperor, whatever it might be, pharaoh, was limited to a geographical location. So the, the Amorites have their gods over there, the Egyptians have their gods down there, the Philistines have their gods over there, and the Israelites have their gods over there. Which is why, and that's as far as the boundaries of those gods worked, that's where it was. Which is why in archaeological discoveries, there are constantly digging up images of the deity or images of the king or monarch or pharaoh. Because in ancient Near Eastern culture, the way the king or the deity would extend their authority, their dominion, their power beyond their jurisdictional area was to have their image and likeness, their visage, put up around. 
And so wherever their images were, their authority and dominion existed in that area as well. Does that make sense? So this is what you have in Daniel chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar raises up the, the golden image and everyone, Daniel says, we're not bowing to this. They're basically saying, this is not our authority. This is the same issue that's happening in Matthew chapter 22 when, and Jesus is being argued about the image of Caesar on the coin, which is very interesting because Jesus' answer is, is insightful because he says, whose image is on this coin? It's Caesar's image. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he goes back to Genesis and says, but man is made in the image of God. Very interesting, very interesting. It's, it's not that the Bible's copying ancient Near Eastern culture. Ancient Near Eastern culture understood God's intention in Genesis 1 and 2, that wherever his image bearers went, his authority and dominion spread. So, so what's happening here is that um, the one thing, oh, by the way, just to show how we're not that different from these cultures, we do the same thing, right? Now, we, we don't consider it spiritual power and authority in that way, but you walk into any federal building, and whose image and likeness do you see? The president of our country. It's the same kind of concept. They're not thinking that Obama's power and, and, and spiritual, that's, that's not what they're getting at. The point is, the same kind of thinking that the image presents a kind of authority is still existent in our culture. So same thing that's going on back here. Now, it's one thing for Yahweh to exercise power and authority in Israel's borders, but to come into Dagon's temple himself and to see him decapitated and his arms lopped off was a brazen announcement that Yahweh was supreme. Borders do not stop him. And that's the message they would have gotten very clear, that they've just brought into their camp something they did not anticipate. Nothing supersedes Yahweh. Nothing precedes him. In other words, God, Yahweh, is preeminent, to quote Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is first in all things. The Philistines got this message loud and clear, as we're going to see. Question is, do we? Do we get the message that God is supreme? Right? In the, in the day and age, age where um, my best friend is a Jewish carpenter kind of mentality that, you know, all these things, God is my co-pilot kind of stuff, do we get that God is supreme, preeminent, first in all things in our life? So, you know why we, we uh, worship on Sunday mornings? The reason we worship on Sunday mornings is because Sunday is what? The first day of the week. And so when we gather together, what we are, our corporate gathering is saying is, we recognize your supremacy over our time, and the very first time that we have, we're giving it to you for worship, for singing your praise, for recognizing your dominion, to hearing your words so that we might live lives in obedience to that. Do you know why in our worship services we, we call it a tithe? Is because that word literally means the first fruits, the first percentage of, of provision. So when we tithe, what we are saying is we recognize our very provision, our very sustenance, our very livelihood all comes from you, and we are giving back the very first that we have as a way of expressing you are supreme over all things, not just my time, but in our culture, our, my money. And what is more valuable in our culture than time and money, right? We, we say time is money. Is God supreme in your life? For a congregation like ours, chances are the question is going to be yes. But the more important question to answer is, how does it show? 
How does it show that God is supreme? How does it show that God is supreme in the way you are a business owner, an employee, a mom, a dad? How does it show that God is supreme in the way you react and interact with your neighbors? Right? We just, uh, Jack, can you put that song up there? It's called Our God. I was like, that's my sermon right there. Our God is, uh, there it is. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. What are we saying when we say he's stronger and higher than any other? You're certainly not thinking of Dagon, right? You're like, yeah, God, I'm glad you're better than Dagon. You aren't thinking that. When we sing our God is greater, our God is stronger, God, you are higher than any other, we're saying, God, you're higher than, 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 than my, my, my concern about, about my finances. You are God above making my ends meet. You are God about restoring my fractured relationships. You are God above all these things. I don't have to get upset. I don't have to get snarky. I don't have to freak out because you're greater. You're stronger. You're higher than all these things. Is that your understanding of the supremacy of God in your life? Or are those just words we're just singing because they sound really great? Right? So God is teaching the first lesson. I'm supreme. Let's get back to the text. So the Lord clearly established his supremacy in a very dramatic way to the Philistines right now. And they got it. The interesting thing is the Philistines, they may have thought because they captured the ark of God that now Yahweh had fallen into their hands. And I love God's word, how it's so comical at times. The reality was, no, the Philistines fell into God's hands. And it says it numerous times. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 6. The hand, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Uh, look at uh, uh, verse 7, the end of verse 7. For his hand is hard against us. Uh, look at the middle of verse 9. The hand of the Lord was against the city. And then look at the end of verse 11. The hand of God was very heavy there. God's hand, God's hand, God's hand, God's hand. No, 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 you didn't have Yahweh fall into your hands. You just fell into his hands and you didn't know it yet. That's exactly what happened. Let, let me read verses 6 and a few verses on. Uh, chapter 5. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things, how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God, so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, and you've got to love this if you've got these as friends, let the ark of God of Israel be brought to Gath, which was their neighboring friends in the next city. So everything's going bad in Ashdod. Well, what are we going to do about this? Let's go send it over there to our friends over there and see what they do with it. That's basically what's happening. You see, the Philistines... It wasn't enough for God to be show himself supreme to the priests and to Dagon and to the rulers of the Philistines. God wanted all this nation to know he was supreme and he was going to do it in no uncertain terms. Let everyone know that Yahweh cannot be co-opted, conquered, or domesticated. It's not the kind of God he is. God was going to make this point in the severest way possible. And we saw a little bit of glimpse of that. Notice that wherever the ark went, and God says that there were tumors, affliction, great panic, and in chapter 6, verse 4, talks about these rodents, these mice. Now, lexically, in other words, the words of the text in Hebrew uh, and the context surrounding it, we either, we're not sure exactly what these, these afflictions were. It could be either dysentery, and if you know what that is, it's horrible, or it could be the bubonic plague. 
They're not sure because there's variation in the words and variations of some of the things they're saying that describe what's happening to them. Either way, the point is, wherever the ark of God was, the people of the Philistines were being decimated. So, I have a slide up here, and we're going to leave it up here. for So, up in the red, that's where chapter 4 took place, the battle of Aphek and Ebenezer. And then you can see um, to the right, there's a hilly region. That's more of the, uh, Israel's borders. But down to the bottom in the blue, those are the five lords of the Philistines. Those were the, the coastal peoples. And their five cities were Ashdod, uh, there you go, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Gaza you may recognize because we still name the current city of Gaza, Gaza. The rest have been renamed. So the ark came to Ashdod. Things went really bad at Ashdod. They said, what are we going to do with it? Let's send it to our friends at Gath. It went really bad in Gath. And so what are we going do with it. Let's send it up to Ekron. So they basically marched the ark to every one of their cities, and all that followed them was this affliction, panic, distress, and these tumors. Now notice this. Um, at least, well, look at chapter 6, verse 1. This went on for seven months. Seven months. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. For seven months, they endured this hardship. I want you to notice something here. The ark of God is doing in chapters 5 and 6 what the Hebrews had hoped it would do in chapter 4, but the ark of God is doing it in, in, in that decimating the Philistines, the enemies of God, but the ark of God is doing this without the help of one single Hebrew soldier. God says, I can do this on my own, and instead of having the thousands of Hebrew soldiers around in chapter 4 to do it, there's not a single Hebrew soldier who's decimating the Philistines. God is doing it all on his own. Unlike Dagon, Yahweh does not need help from his people. Unlike Dagon, Yahweh does not need to be propped up. He is not a psychological aid or a spiritual fix. He is the supreme God that knows no borders. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God I want. And it's also very comforting to know that God does not need my help to get what He needs to get done. And if we're going to be honest, I probably mess it up more often than I help Him out. But that doesn't even stop Him. It's comforting to me that God does not need me at all. I like that. Now, that doesn't mean He doesn't want me involved in it. He wants His people involved in what He's doing. He longs for that. In the same way that a dad says, yeah, come on over, help me work on the car. We all know, dads, that you're just causing more trouble, but you want them there. In the same way, God says, come on in, Rick. You're probably going to make this more of a pain for me than otherwise, but come on, because I want this time together. And that's what these Philistines learned, though, that God cannot be stopped Nothing stops him. Four times that phrase, the hand of the Lord was upon them. His severity was clearly known, and it caused fear and panic and distress. To finally, the Philistines decide to send the ark back. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means, return to him a guilt offering, then you will be healed. You see, they've been appropriately humbled. They've been appropriately humbled by these difficulties. But more important for our purposes, the Philistines recognize, this is a real, a very modern application, that difficulties can have a tendency to harden our hearts, don't they? 
Like, God, why'd you allow this to happen? God, if you love me this, then that, and you get all this kind of self-bad conversation, then you get all hardened over. The Philistines recognize, no, 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 no. We're not going to let the difficulties harden our hearts. We're actually going to allow the difficulties to soften us. Look at what they say in uh, verse, I'm going to start at verse 5 of chapter 6. This is the priests of Dagon talking to the people of Philistines, what they should do with the ark. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Verse 6, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? See, they recognize that, guys, let's not do what those Egyptians did many years ago, and they got harder and harder in their hearts, and God had to be more and more severe. Let's not make that mistake. It's been severe enough. We get the point. Let's relent. Nothing supersedes this God. Nothing stops Him. It would be foolish to fight Him, and so they make the wise decision. To the best that they could understand, they sought forgiveness of God, and they wanted to make things right. And so verses 10 through 16 of chapter 6, we hear of how the Philistines are, as best as they can, trying to make an offering to this God of Israel and send the ark back, even though that would have been a national disgrace, humiliating, and uh, from a security standpoint, very dangerous because they wouldn't have known what the ark had done to them, had decimated their armies, and they would be ripe for attack at that point. But the Philistines recognize, you don't mess with this kind of a God. We have no category for what we're dealing with here. And, and I wish it was a full repentance. It wasn't. It was just, would you just go away and let us go back to our impotent gods? How often, though, we can be doing the same thing, right? We, we just... I don't, I don't want to live in full submission to you. I don't want my life radically given to you. Can you just maybe go away and leave me alone to my impotent gods that I have to prop up and allow me to live in my self-delusion? So God had shown His supremacy. God had shown His severity. And finally, to His own people, He teaches the last lesson here, His sanctity, verses, uh, chapter 16, verse 17, uh, to seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Let me read to you verse 17 and 18. So, uh, verses 10 to 16 was the ark coming back, and, and we'll get, jump back into that in a little bit, but here's verse 17. These are the golden tumors, so their guilt offering were golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, which is why we think it could have been bubonic plague because you had this, uh, these different things going on with the mice and disease. Uh, according to the number of the, all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. Okay, so, so, that, so what they're, what's being communicated here, the Philistines are basically saying, we get the point. We, we get that this was you, that you brought these afflictions, and so they're making these golden tumors, golden replications of the tumors and mice, and giving them as a guilt offering. What's happening is the Philistines recognize that the forgiveness, their forgiveness is going to come at a price that if there's going to be a pardon here, it's going to cost. And so they, they, they offer this gold. Now, now, their deities would have accepted riches. As a matter of fact, the surrounding nations, their deities had the same appetites as the people who worshiped them. So uh, money, sex, power, all those things were important to those deities too. So they tried to appease Yahweh by giving Him money. See, the Lord was different though, right? 
And we're going to see it in just a, real quick. He's not interested in increasing his wealth portfolio. None of that matters. What he's interested in is rightness and justice. And so we see that uh, happening, that this, this offense against God, this is not a mere economic transgression where you just pay him money and he's happy. There's something far greater at stake here. You recall Eli's question to his sons in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And the answer is no one can. The sin, offense against this kind of being is so grievous that only a life being taken for the offense will appease it. So we see that in chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. The ark now has come back into Israel. Now the people of Beth Shemesh, that's a border town with the Philistines, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. And so what happens is the Philistines put the ark on a cart, another box with their guilt offering, and they they hook it up to these cows, and the cows walk straight back to Israel. And the Israelites see it, they rejoice, they break open the, the, the boxes, they have a sacrifice, and they kill the cows that came with the cart as a means of sacrificing, asking God for his forgiveness. So it all seems that things are well, until we get to this verse in verse 19, it's, it's, it's almost very discouraging. And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then it leads to this great and really haunting in a good way question at verse 20. If you're a note taker, write down 1 Samuel 6.20, just like you should write down 1 Samuel 2.25. These are these key verses that, that really are thematic. This is what's happened. So God strikes down these men. In verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Okay, so what's going on here? The ark came back. The people of Israel saw it. They were excited. They made a sacrifice, and they, some of them looked at the ark and, and looked inside, and God struck 70 of them dead, and they go, what is the deal? Can we get a break here? I mean, really? And one of them says, who can stand before a holy God like this? Okay, so remember what's happening in the writing of 1 Samuel. Remember what's trying to be communicated here. The purpose of this text was that Israel is learning again who their Lord really is. They have come from centuries of just doing their own thing, being dismissive about the things of God, not really caring what the Torah, what theology they imbibed about who he was, being apathetic and being a people of compromise, mark them as a people. And God is now bringing a new chapter of their lives, but they need to get a grip real clear of who it is he actually is. So in chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, he's showing them that he's supreme. Nothing trumps him. Nothing supersedes him. Nothing precedes him. No gods stand before this God. And in chapter uh, 5, verse 6 to 6, chapter 6, verse 16, he's showing them that he is severe. Nothing stops him. You cannot run from him. You cannot hide from him. And then the final lesson he's showing here in in chapter 6, verse 17 and following, he's reminding them that he's set apart 
Nothing compares to him. So he's saying, look, I am supreme, I'm severe, and I'm set apart. Nothing trumps me, nothing stops me, and nothing compares to me. Treat me as holy. Don't ever forget that's who I am. You see, there's this common concept we have in our culture. And, and, and if you were here a couple weeks ago, this is going to be a nice a counterbalance to what I said. There's this idea that, that we can come before God and, 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 and however we want, that God does not care. He's loving enough that he's not bothered by petty protocol and procedure and parliamentary ways of doing things. He just wants you to come into his presence. He doesn't care. You're never going to find that in the Old Testament. You will never, ever, ever find that teaching in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you find the exact opposite of that in the Old Testament. You cannot turn a page in the Old Testament without being confronted. Whoa, this is a holy God. Whoa, this is a holy God. Whoa, he's not like anything I know. So in Exodus chapter 19, uh, God comes down to the Mount of Sinai. It's the first time he's meeting with his people. Up to that point, the people were upset with God, wandering around this desert because we made one mistake, and who is he to do all this, blah, 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 grumbling and complaining. Well, God came down to meet, and smoke, and fire, and thunder, and darkness, the mountain shook, and the people went, oh, we don't want to talk. Moses, you go talk to him now. You talk to him. And God said, make sure no man touches the mountain or they will die. My presence is here. In Numbers chapter 4, fast forward, when God is creating the tabernacle and all these holy instruments, he says, make sure nobody looks into them. My purity is there in their presence and they will die if they see them. The entire book of Leviticus, anybody read Leviticus? Anybody read Leviticus? Yeah, that's right. It's just line upon line of rules and this and that and the other down, down to the gnat's eyebrow. God is saying, I'm a holy God, and you need to know how to conduct yourself in your whole life to exist before me. Okay, so let me cap it off with this great illustration from C.S. Lewis. We've, most of you have seen If you haven't read Leviticus, certainly you've seen Chronicles of Narnia, right? So there's little Lucy. She sees Aslan for the first time, this big monstrous lion, and she asked the perfect question to Mr. Beaver. She says, that's Aslan. Is Aslan safe, Mr. Beaver? And of course, he gives the perfect response, right? What's he say? Of course not. He's a lion, <laughs> But he's good. But he's good. There is nothing safe about God, right? We have domesticated him. We have taken the claws out. There is nothing safe about God. He's God. He's not a benevolent grandpa. He's not a, a more popular version of Santa Claus. He is the unstoppable, unconquerable, unimaginably pure God. And that is radically dangerous, radically dangerous because of his fierce love for us. You go, well, he's radically dangerous because of his fierce love for his people? That's because we understand love through Disney's lens, right? There's no strength to that love. We have this weird sense of love in our culture that doesn't have the engine that love really has. So so let me put it this way. In the same way, uh, a father's fierce love for his daughter makes him very dangerous to any individual potential boyfriend of that, of that daughter. God's fierce love for his people makes him especially, especially dangerous to anything that threatens their well-being. Does that make sense? So if you've ever been that man, 
you want to date this daughter, you will go through whatever protocol, whatever manner of change. You'll cut your hair, get a job, stop listening to certain music. You do whatever it takes so that you are found worthy to date the object of that father's love. That's the same kind of dynamic going on here. You see, love does not lower standards. Love raises standards in orders of magnitude. It never lowers them. It always raises them. God's love is our supreme joy and supreme peril. If you don't understand that, you don't understand who He is. If you understand that, you really understand who God is. That His love is both our supreme joy and supreme peril. And in order to maintain the ultimate good of His people... God enforces the standards of that love for their own sake, even if it means certain people will suffer the judgment for violating it, like we saw in verse 19. So what was the issue? So I won't get into it, but basically they had violated all the stipulations of the Torah of how to treat the ark. They had treated it like it was in any other religious, they had still not learned that lesson. They had looked into it and God said, why? This could have been a good thing here. And he has to wipe out 70 of them. And so we get this great question, who then can stand before this Lord, this holy God? And the implied answer, like to Eli's question, is no one can. The demands of God's love, His law, His holiness are just too high. No man or woman ever can. No man or woman ever will. We are all doomed except for the God-man. You see, this is exactly why Jesus Christ came to be, not to give us a helping hand, not to give us a little push, not to make us a little better, but to do what was humanly impossible, and that was to live up to the excruciating specific demands of living life before a holy God that nobody could ever do because of our sinful nature. And Jesus did it all and said, I've done it, I'm giving it to you. And that's why in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, hey, just come with confidence, come with boldness, come with your suit, come with Bermuda shorts, just come because the way is open in Christ. But no other way. No other way. So I'm not contradicting what I said a few weeks ago. The reason we can come dressed in shorts or in a suit or at all is because the excruciating, precise demands have all been met and satisfied. And Jesus says, look, I'll take all their sin. I'll take all their miss-ups. I'll take it all. You give to them my perfection. So any one of us who says, I can't get there. No one can stand before this holy God, but yet if, if you cover me with Jesus, I can. That's exactly what's happening. So what we're seeing in this passage here is the foolishness of God's people, and this is the gospel here, the foolishness of God's people pushing God's presence away as we've seen in the ark, pictured in the ark, and the ark being taken away, but God in his severity and his supremacy and his sanctity loving his people enough that he brings his presence back all unaided by us, all on his own accord. He brings his presence back to the people of God so that the people of God can enjoy his presence and enjoy it for their good. That's what's happening here. You see, a God that is 
uh, we have to close with this, a God that is merely nice or easygoing won't push past your stubborn resistance, will he? And a God that is merely kind or relaxed, he won't confront you or risk your disapproval. But a God who is powerful enough can and will overcome your stubborn resistance. A God that is unstoppable can wear you down in your stubbornness. And a God that is good will do all this because he loves his people. And that's what we see here in 1 Samuel 5 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We do not deserve any of this. But we can't turn a page in this book without being reminded that you love us and that you will not even allow our own sinfulness, our own ignorance, our own apathy to stand in the way. But you will constantly bring your presence to us. Would you be so kind to help any one of us here recognize that we need your presence, but we can't have it apart from Jesus Christ. Lord, may that realization make us run to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, recognizing He did what we couldn't. And so, Lord, we give you praise, glory, honor, and dominion in all these things in the name of Jesus to your name, and we thank you. Amen.